Hello and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello and welcome, Dr. Weatherby here from Optimal DX and the ODX Academy. Welcome to Optimal Podcast Episode 7. And we're diving into endothelial dysfunction this month, looking at endothelial dysfunction and its role in cardiovascular disease. Now, as we all know, cardiovascular disease is a rampant issue in the Western developed world. It's actually the primary cause of death worldwide, cutting short an estimated 17.9 million lives annually, according to the WHO. And approximately four out of five of those deaths are attributed to heart attack and stroke. And so there's a growing body of evidence that indicates that the underlying cause of most cardiovascular disease is a condition called endothelial dysfunction. Now, this is caused by damage to the endothelial lining of the coronary arteries. So this is the topic of our podcast today. Before we dive into the assessment and treatment of endothelial dysfunction, we'll take a look at the physiology, the function, and dysfunction of the vascular endothelium to give us a really good understanding of endothelial dysfunction's role in cardiovascular disease. Then we'll be able to use our functional assessment techniques to uncover if our patients are trending towards endothelial dysfunction and then intervene to slow the progression of cardiovascular disease, or preferably take early steps to prevent it altogether. So we're going to be diving into the biomarkers and also the treatment of endothelial dysfunction later on. We're going to be joined by Beth Allen DeLulia. She's going to be talking about some of the research that she's done on this issue. And as always, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about the research behind what we cover in our podcasts, please go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. And we're going to have a whole load of blog posts on endothelial dysfunction. All right, so let's start our review with a short discussion on what is the endothelium. Well, this is a thin single layer of cells that forms the inner lining of blood vessels. So that would be capillaries, veins, and arteries, as well as the lymphatic system. Now, within blood vessels, the endothelium regulates blood flow by sending relaxation or constriction messages to the vascular smooth muscle cells. The endothelial layer also serves as a barrier. It protects the smooth muscle layer of the artery from toxic metabolites in the blood. So what are some of those toxic metabolites? Well, these would be things like homocysteine, chlorine, environmental pollutants, free radicals, and smoking. And yes, for those of you that think that e-cigarettes are safer, absolutely not true. E-cigarettes can cause damage to those smooth muscle cells. And what happens then, we get damage to the endothelial lining, and the process of atherosclerosis is initiated. Now, the protective sentinel of the endothelium is the endothelial glycocalyx. This is a mesh-like barrier that protects the interior endothelial lining. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about the endothelial calyx in our blog post. So please go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. And we'll have a little bit more about the research behind the endothelial calyx. Now, the vascular endothelium can be considered the largest endocrine organ in the body due to its abundant production of vasoactive substances and balancing things. So it balances between antioxidation and pro-oxidation. It balances between growth inhibition and growth promotion, antithrombosis, prothrombosis, anti-inflammation, pro-inflammation, vasodilation, and vasoconstriction. Now, a healthy endothelium is characterized by reduced vascular tension and low oxidative stress, a state that is maintained by a molecule that we'll be talking about throughout this presentation, a bioactive mediator called nitric oxide. So disruption of this blood vessel layer by noxious stimuli is going to cause endothelial dysfunction, so laying the groundwork for atherosclerosis and blood vessel damage. Now, decreased availability or the function of nitric oxide in particular contributes to the most endothelial dysfunction and therefore the majority of cardiovascular disease. So let's take a moment to talk about this pretty incredible chemical called nitric oxide because it really does play such an important role in endothelial function and health. So nitric oxide is derived from the conditionally essential amino acid arginine through the action of endothelial nitric oxide synthase, and it has a protective effect on the endothelium through the inhibition of inflammation, leukocyte adhesion, oxidative stress, platelet aggregation, vascular smooth muscle cell migration, and proliferation. However, once the endothelium is damaged, the protective effects of nitric oxide dissipate. So the damaged area becomes very susceptible to fibrosis, lipid deposition, and infiltration of inflammatory immune cells. So this leads us to the topic at hand. What is endothelial dysfunction? So this refers to the functional and structural damage that occurs to the endothelium. Interestingly, endothelial dysfunction and impaired vasodilation are also characteristic of a number of other diseases, diabetes and hypertension. So this helps to reveal kind of the common enemy among prevalent chronic diseases. So what are some of the diseases associated with endothelial dysfunction? So at the top of the list, we have atherosclerosis. Endothelial dysfunction is damaged to the lining of the artery and is thought to be a key event in the progression to atherosclerosis. Second on the list, we have heart attacks and stroke. Endothelial dysfunction has been shown to be a prognostic significance in predicting vascular events, including stroke and heart attacks. And now we move on to diabetes, maybe a hallmark of hypertension and diabetes. Congestive heart failure, elevated inflammatory markers associated with endothelial dysfunction may actually promote congestive heart failure. So what about some of the causes? So traditional and contemporary risk factors for cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis are found to be directly associated with endothelial dysfunction. So things like hypertension, having an elevated BMI, cigarette smoking, and yes, e-cigarettes should be included on that list. A whole host of blood sugar dysregulation issues, including hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and full-blown diabetes, dyslipidemia, oxidized LDL, oxidative stress, pro-inflammatory cytokines, and toxic exposure. So these are all things that can cause endothelial dysfunction. Now, to differentiate between cause and promotion, we also have some promoters of endothelial dysfunction, and these would include our diet, poor diet, 
nutrient deficiencies. So things that we're seeing in the Western diet as well. Lack of exercise, sedentary lifestyle, some of the things that we'll talk about later on in the biomarker section, but increased homocysteine. Homocysteine is dangerous because it can actually induce that initial injury to the endothelium. And then that facilitates the oxidation of the fat in the LDL that accumulates beneath the damaged endothelium and finally contributes to the abnormal accumulation of blood components around the atherosclerotic lesion. So increased homocysteine. Some people have said it's a little bit like having a steel wool running through your arteries. Hyperglycemia, so circulating advanced glycation end products or AGEs correlate with atherosclerosis and arterial stiffness. So what that is basically is the higher your blood glucose is over time, we get glycation happening and glycation often happens to our blood cells. Hence, we have hemoglobin A1C, which is a measurement of that. And now this is flowing through the blood again, probably acting almost like that steel wool of homocysteine and can cause atherosclerosis and arterial stiffness. Increased fibrinogen synthesis. We'll talk about fibrinogen in the biomarker section. So fibrinogen contributes to the clotting process. This is happening further down in the process. Once that initiation of endothelium has happened, the damage to the endothelial lining, then fibrinogen comes on, contributes to that clotting process, further jeopardizing the integrity and function of the blood vessel. Elevated CRP, C-reactive proteins, sign of inflammation and in fact, may actually damage the endothelium as well. So some of those are the promoters of endothelial dysfunction. So we talk also about the immune response. So the immune response and infiltration of immune cells can actually promote endothelial dysfunction and atherosclerosis. So neutrophils are the most abundant white blood cell in the immune system. These cells can be both protective and destructive. On the downside, their contribution to atherosclerosis has often been overlooked they exude neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, that trap pathogens but can also trigger endothelial dysfunction, inflammation, and atherosclerosis. NETs have been identified in atherosclerotic plaques. So research is suggesting that the neutrophil count is actually can be a significant predictor of cardiovascular events. Let's take a look now at oxidative stress and its relationship to the endothelial dysfunction. Oxidative stress and inflammation negatively affect nitric oxide metabolism. Remember, we're talking about how nitric oxide is so important for the endothelial lining and can lead to global vasoconstriction, something that you don't want to have is the constriction of your blood vessels. So these reactive oxygen species associated with oxidative stress can combine with nitric oxide to produce highly reactive molecules that in turn generate more oxidative stress, more atherosclerosis, and more vascular injury. So we've already talked a lot about endothelial dysfunction and atherosclerosis. So I wanted to finish this intro section by talking a little bit more about this particular condition. So as we've mentioned, damage to the endothelium is the first step on the road to full-blown atherosclerosis, which actually contributes to most heart attacks and strokes. Because atherosclerosis causes ischemic heart disease, it is in fact considered to be the main cause of death worldwide. So atherosclerosis is characterized by endothelial dysfunction, vascular inflammation, and the part that most people are aware of, that buildup of lipids, cholesterol, calcium, cellular debris within the intima of the walls of large and medium-sized arteries. All of these together are an important part of characterizing what atherosclerosis is. What are some of the major risk factors? Well, getting old, having an old arterial system antioxidant insufficiency, not being able to balance out that oxidative stress, 
chronic inflammation, elevated homocysteine, lifestyle factors. So our classic sedentary lifestyle, Western-style diet, obesity, smoking, and exposure to pollution. And then finally, the final risk factor is oxidative stress. So continued exposure to cardiovascular risk factors is mirrored in pathological changes to blood vessels. So we have a loss of integrity of the vascular endothelium. This is accompanied by atherosclerosis, increased smooth muscle cell migration and proliferation, leukocyte migration, and adhesion. So early in vivo research demonstrated that atherosclerotic coronary arteries did not dilate in the presence of vasoactive acetylcholine, but constricted instead. So endothelial dysfunction continues its rampage, even in advanced atherosclerosis, as it can promote the rupture of atherosclerotic plaque. So let's give a little summary of what we've talked about. So endothelial dysfunction is an early initiating event in vascular disease atherosclerosis. Additionally, the loss of nitric oxide and changes to endothelial cell phenotype encourage the oxidation of circulating lipids. Low-density lipoproteins, LDL, become oxidized LDL, and these are preferentially retained by inflammatory cells to begin to penetrate the damaged endothelial layer. Then we get the accumulation of both of these inflammatory cells and these oxidized lipids, inducing the formation of a fatty plaque in major arteries that grow into the lumen to impede blood flow. Finally, we get erosion or rupture of those advanced plaques. This is the trigger for thrombosis, which is called a blood clot, and that may occlude arteries causing a cardiovascular event, such as a heart attack or stroke. So that's a short journey into the physiology, function, and dysfunction of the vascular endothelium, which gives us an understanding of how we progress from early stages of endothelial dysfunction all the way through to full-blown atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So let's now turn our attention to the functional assessment of endothelial dysfunction, finish up with a look at the functional nutritional approach to treating it. And I'm joined now by Beth Ellen DeLulio from Florida. Hi, Beth. Hi, hi. Good to have you with us. This is such an interesting topic, and you did Mm -hmm. such a great job writing all of the content and the research. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Just go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog to read some of the blog posts that are associated with this. You get all the references and all of that type of stuff. But Beth, I wanted to kind of like turn our attention now to the assessment of this. We've just done a run through of what it is and the implications of it sort of clinically. Tell us a little bit about some of the signs and symptoms that you kind of came up with, because I think one of the interesting things was that I picked up from the work that you did was there's no overt signs and symptoms of endothelial mm-hmm. dysfunction itself. Mm-hmm. So what can clinicians kind of pick up from the work that they're doing on that level, this sort of history type work with their patients? Well, again, it's looking at risk factors and there are no overt signs until you got trouble, maybe have angina, then you go, mm-hmm. hey, there's a telltale sign. Right. But atherosclerosis, which endothelial dysfunction can lead to, has a long, silent, asymptomatic phase. So don't wait till someone has angina. Let's look at the risk factors, which we'll talk about towards the end. We talk about treatment and nutrition intervention and things like that. So the best thing a clinician can do is know what the risk factors are. And of course, there are methods to measure endothelial dysfunction, but sometimes, especially with a very poor diet and a poor lifestyle and someone that smokes and is exposed to a lot of air pollution, they have high risk factors. So you can imagine that there's something going on under the surface there. So let's assume anybody with the risk factors has this underlying process even before they have symptoms. Right. 
And that's what I love about the blood chemistry side of it too, the analysis mm -hmm. that you can do. We'll talk about those in a few moments. But from an allopathic perspective, obviously endothelial dysfunction is becoming recognized as the underlying cause of atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. What of the available methods, and there's like maybe seven or eight that are mm -hmm. out there, which ones do you think we need to sort of pay attention to because patients might have had that done or maybe you want to recommend having them done by their medical doctor? Well, there's an older one, a non-invasive, the cold presser test was so interesting because you basically put someone's hand in cold water for two minutes <laughs> and just to hold it there for two minutes. And the, it says a vasoconstriction versus vasodilation was going to prevail if they have endothelial dysfunction. So the endothelium wow. is unable to respond and adjust and increase its dilation. So with some people that stay vasoconstricted, they will actually mount a hypotensive response. So that's like a quick and easy thing. I think How cold does it have to be? Learned. Very cold. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know. If, you know, it's funny. you asked the true question. I didn't see the temperature, <laughs> but we could dive into that deeper. Cold yeah. enough to hurt, I'm going to say. But it is an official test they had done earlier before we had the technology to actually measure flow. But the most, what I found was the most available and convenient tool was called the flow-mediated dilation test. And it actually, they believe, reflects nitric oxide production. So of all those tests, and some were more complex, the flow-mediated dilation seemed to be the quickest and easiest. And it stimulates like brachial artery endothelium to produce vasodilatory factors. And it's supposed to help dilate blood vessels and reduce tension. And when people don't respond with this vasodilation, you know they have a problem. Right. That seems to be the easiest. And it's actually, they're using it to predict cardiovascular events in people without over cardiovascular risk or the traditional risks, right, that a physician, an allopathic physician would look at. So if someone that they say, well, you're not really a high risk, they might not be looking at all the other things we look at, right, at diet and lifestyle. But they think they have no risk and they do the test and you can actually find out somebody really does have cardiovascular risk and can predict cardiovascular events using the FMD test. Are there any tests that sort of, other than blood biomarkers, are there any other tests that more sort of functionally oriented cardiovascular specialists might be using? Jumping into blood chemistry or besides? Besides blood chemistry. Blood chemistry. Well, again, those two, the cold water test and your patient will probably never come back because who wants to stick their hand into cold yeah, water? Yeah, right, exactly. But the other ones that we have listed in the blog post are a little more advanced. So I guess it would depend on if the practitioner would have those available in the office. Right. So like pulse wave velocity and that mm -hmm. type of stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Carotid duplex ultrasound. Yeah. Yeah. Those Sweet. are pretty complex. <laughs> so let's dive into blood chemistry biomarkers, shall we? This is obviously a mm -hmm. huge area for us. So there were a number of findings, and I think there are some here that are we're all very familiar with, mm -hmm. homocysteine, glucose, fibrinogen. Maybe we could just touch in a little bit of there's any research that you sort of came up with in any of those that would be worth mentioning? Well, I want to say that it kind of does pull it all together when we know some of these things are risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Well, they're risk factors for endothelial dysfunction. So just like you said, elevated homocysteine and they, one of the research studies showed that atherosclerosis increased progressively with a homocysteine level above 11. Wow. And so again, we know our cutoff, our optimals are lower than that. But the research out there is saying, listen, if you're thinking that 11 is okay for homocysteine, it is not. And you can have progressive 
increases in atherosclerosis. So I thought that was really, really important to pay attention to. And then the elevated blood glucose study, it showed postprandial glucose levels above 122 milligrams per deciliter or 6.8 millimoles per liter can impair flow-mediated arterial dilation. And that's not a hugely high uh, blood glucose. You have somebody, especially with diabetes. So I want to mention too that I had come across research that someone that took a good dose of psyllium powder with a meal, a carbohydrate-containing meal, psyllium powder could blunt that postprandial glucose. So again, we're trying to keep that low as possible mm. and taking psyllium powder with the meal helped to do that, including with diabetics. So I thought having that cutoff saying, wow, it shouldn't be above 122 even after a meal was very interesting. And then fibrinogen, we know elevated fibrinogen can be a problem. And we know that it's fibrinogen synthesis is stimulated by IL-6 and it promotes coagulation and increases endothelial dysfunction, as we know. And of course, elevated CRP, we know that that's a reflection of increased inflammation, but it also increases risk of endothelial dysfunction. So those are the elevated biomarkers that we mm. want to look for, for even early endothelial dysfunction. Right. And, and in the work we do at Optimal DX and the functional health reports, I have a way of looking at sort of a risk factors for endothelial dysfunction that looks at sort of changing levels of these biomarkers to mm. give us a sense of that elevated risk. So I think the take-home point being measure these things. If you can intervene early, and we'll talk about things that you can intervene with later, but if mm -hmm. you can intervene early, it can make a huge difference. Somebody who has, let's say, a high risk score for endothelial dysfunction doesn't mean that they're walking around with a high level of endothelial dysfunction. It means that the risk factors are such that pay attention to this person, look at all of the other factors that are associated with cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis, look at their diet, look at their lifestyle, look at their family history and all that sort of stuff. We're also talking about elevated iron and ferritin. Those are two biomarkers that are associated with oxidative stress and obviously ferritin increasing in inflammation. So those are kind of interesting too. And there's more. <laughs> and there's a lot right. more, yeah. And then looking at low testosterone, you found yeah. a significantly correlated with the reduced flow mediated vasodilation, mm -hmm. found to be an independent risk factor for endothelial dysfunction in men. So we're looking at these elevated levels of these biomarkers, and then we have this low level of testosterone as well. Tell us a little bit more about the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio. I thought this was pretty interesting. This is something that we're calculating in the software for mm -hmm. our mm -hmm. users and reporting on it. What did you find out in terms of that for endothelial dysfunction? So interesting and so easy to calculate. I know. So we know it's a, yeah, it's a marker of systemic inflammation and markers associated with increased circulating pro-inflammatory cytokines. And there was a nice study that stratified risk when you look at the NLR. So there was seemed to be a low risk of endothelial dysfunction in patients with no symptoms. So a low risk of endothelial dysfunction with an NLR below 1.5. Intermediate risk in patients between 1.5 and 3. And then a high risk of endothelial dysfunction in those who had a neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio over 3. So that was kind of a quick and easy thing. Just with a CBC with diff, someone can do that calculation too. So I thought that was really interesting. And of course, you have to look at that like anything, look at it, the whole clinical picture. If that's the only thing that's going on and it's a one-time calculation from one blood chemistry test, then you want to say, well, this person really doesn't have the other risk factors we're talking about. So monitor that carefully. But mm -hmm. in somebody with risk factors and you see that NLR increase, and I would assume that, yeah, they're on their way to atherosclerosis and endothelial dysfunction. So that was a nice, quick and easy calculation I thought was very nice. 
And then just continuing on some of the biomarkers that we're currently measuring here in the software, looking at elevated gamma glutamyl transferase or GGT. I thought this was interesting. I always think of that as obviously it's a liver enzyme. It's a marker for gallbladder insufficiency. I look at it for maybe glutathione issues as well. So I thought it was interesting that you found that it can be an important biomarker for atherosclerosis and vascular injury, strongly associated with those other things that we're looking at, C-reactive protein. Talk a little bit about oxidized LDL in a minute. Anything mm-hmm. else that stood out with the GGT for you with endothelial dysfunction? Well, the fact they actually looked at it as an independent risk factor, and that was in I healthy know, I thought males. That was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, healthy males for your heart disease. And they gave us some cutoffs. They said those with the highest GGT of 35 units per liter or greater had a 2.34 greater risk of acute coronary event than those with a GGT of less than 13. So there's yeah. a bit of a spread. But that higher number, maybe, you know, in somebody with no heart disease and you see the high GGT, you might not think much of it. But they're saying over 35, they could have a 2.34 greater risk of acute coronary event, right? Person with no history no heart disease, no sign of anything, that sudden coronary event, that might be a little clue to that. So I thought mm. that was really, really important and interesting to look at. And GGT is one of those biomarkers that allopathic physicians are not running anymore, along mm-hmm. with uric acid, which I think is fascinating, and CO2. Mm-hmm. Lastly, low adiponectin. What were your thoughts on that one? Well, we know that low adiponectin is associated with obesity, which is then associated with cardiovascular disease. Because adiponectin is an anti-inflammatory cytokine, right? And it is produced by the adipose tissue mainly. But it found that if you increase, if they're low, levels are low, and you can increase it, that it would reduce the risk of endothelial dysfunction. And you could increase it. Calorie restriction, lower estrogen levels can increase it. And then factors that could decrease it would be oxidative stress, cigarette smoking, obesity, as I said, and type 2 diabetes. So Again, risk factor, risk factor, risk factor. You look at those risk factors, even if you looked at nothing else and didn't look at the biochemistry and the blood markers, those risk factors affect so many blood markers that they should be red flags as soon as somebody checks off a box of any of these things that can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. And sometimes it's because it can decrease adiponectin. Sometimes it's because it increases inflammation. Whatever the reason, those are... I'm going to say signs that anybody, allopathic, naturopathic, functional medicine, have to look at those as risk factors. Sweet. So I'm just going to do a little recap of the markers that we're currently measuring in the blood chemistry software at Optimal Mm -hmm. DX and their relationship to endothelial dysfunction. So elevated homocysteine, elevated glucose. You were looking primarily at postprandial glucose. We don't currently have that in the software, but we will be adding that soon. But I'm imagining that elevated fasting glucose probably would have a, a role to play in this as well. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. anybody that's got a postprandial glucose of about 122, they're going to have to have pretty well-maintained fasting glucose levels at that point as well. Mm-hmm. Elevated fibrinogen, elevated C-reactive protein, both CRP and HSCRP, low testosterone levels, both free and total in our male patients, elevated iron, elevated ferritin. Mm-hmm elevated neutrophil lymphocyte ratio, correct? Mm -hmm. And then these last two we just looked at was elevated GGT and low adiponectin. There were quite a few other biomarkers on your list. I mean, these are Mm -hmm. things that are found on a lot of the cardiometabolic panels from Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Heart Lab and things like that. So these are things that we will be adding into the Mm -hmm. software that Mm -hmm. is so important for this cardiometabolic work. Mm -hmm. But let's look at oxidized LDL not something that we're taking a look at 
a lot, but I think it's something that we probably should be paying attention mm-hmm. to, especially. Mm-hmm. I think this, we should uh, be, yeah, we should pay more attention to that than total LDL. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. But we know that the small sticky particles tend to be oxidized or tend right. to be more oxidized or more prone to oxidation. So if you do the full breakdown and you get somebody with a small sticky LDL, you can imagine that, yes, they're at more risk at an increased oxidized LDL. But the research is out there, you know, and they, again, risk of atherosclerosis. That's the beginning of it, really, is Mm -hmm. when those foam cells are created from the macrophages, they recognize the oxidized LDL, chomp it up and burst and make foam cells, right? The beginning of atherosclerosis and then epithelial dysfunction. So there was one cutoff, an oxidized LDL of 44.3 units per liter and above. They found the risk of atherosclerosis was significantly higher in those folks. So it's definitely something down the road. I hope we start to measure more frequently. And again, it is more important than just LDL. Because if you lower your LDL, and I'm going to say artificially, you could lower the LDL, say with a medication, but none of the other risk factors or lifestyle changes take place. And the person is exposed to a lot of oxidation. Even whatever is floating around in their blood is LDL is going to be prone to oxidation and can set off atherosclerosis. So it's not just the level of LDL, but what is going on with that LDL. Because right. I always call it the LDL bus, right? It's just being shipped out on the LDL bus to be dropped off. Cholesterol needs to be dropped off where needed. And no matter how low the level, if it's getting oxidized, you're going to have trouble in the artery. So Yeah. And then we're looking at elevated asymmetric dimethyl arginine as a potential contributor to endothelial dysfunction, looking at levels, optimal levels, trying to keep them below 100. Then we've got Mm -hmm. other elevated myeloperoxidase, MPO, Mm -hmm. prooxidant enzyme released by neutrophils, and then elevated malon dialdehyde, MDA, MDA. (laughs) oxidative stress marker. We talked about that in our oxidative stress podcast. Something that you've done a lot of research on is this suboptimal omega-3 index. Mm -hmm. Talk us through what the findings were for that. Yeah, not a lot of people looking at it now, but I hope that they do. There's even a home little blood spot test you can do for the omega-3 index that's telling you the EPA, basically EPA and DHA in the red blood cell membrane. So what do you have in the pantry ready to go? And of course, omega-3, right? Omega-3 fatty acids are going to be converted into anti-inflammatory compounds. So you want to have those in the pantry when you need to produce anti-inflammatory compounds. If you don't have them in the red blood cell membrane and cell membranes, then you're most likely going to have omega-6s, which will produce the pro-inflammatory cytokines and compounds. So we want to know, and of course, omega-3 is, you have to get it from the diet, right? And omega-3 EPA, DHA, which is preformed, basically the fish oil type, I recommend because some people don't produce the EPA, DHA well, even if they're taking in alpha-linolenic, they might not convert it well to the EPA, DHA. So you have to have it in your diet, a good dose, you know, a good source three times a week at least of EPA, DHA. And then when you take the measurement, we want it above 8% now. Some of the labs, and you can do with blood draw, but they will say, okay, 3.4% you know, or above is okay. But the research is saying, no, you want it at 8% or more. So the optimal for the omega-3 index is 8% or more. And again, it's even a home little blood spot test you could do. And it correlates with the serum blood test that you can do. So it's an easy and quick thing that people can do and know. And I tell you, half the time, people are barely taking in omega-3s on a regular basis. We know that eating fish, you know, low mercury fish, but high omega-3 fish, three times a week seem to do the trick and reduce risk of heart disease. So 
you'd be surprised how many people don't even do some omega right. three source three times a week. So I guarantee you that their levels are going to be low. But our goal is to get that omega three source in EPA, DHA at least three times a week, and then test the omega three index. And eight percent or higher is ideal. And I've seen it increase on people over time when they pay attention and they take in omega threes three times a week at least. You really can increase that fairly quickly, six months or so. Sweet. So I'm going to encourage people to come over to the blog. We've got a very cool graphic here talking about cigarette smoke and e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. We talked about e-cigarettes being as dangerous as mm-hmm. uh, regular cigarettes. So inflammation from cigarette smoking, very much important part. And then also we'll talk a little bit about some of the advanced biomarkers and endothelial dysfunction. So optimaldx.com forward slash blog, shameless plug for you to come over, <laughs> read the articles that we're going to post on this important topic. One of the things I love our podcast is this, what do we do about it? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. obviously so important. So let's dive into really looking at sort of allopathic approaches. Mm -hmm. I'll cover a little bit of that. And then maybe you can jump in and finish up with the naturopathic approach. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the allopathic approach to to endothelial dysfunction are based on its identification once it's established. I think that is such an interesting correlation right there, because I think Mm -hmm. it sums up probably everything that's wrong with allopathic medicine from a functional medicine perspective is, oh, you don't have endothelial dysfunction yet, so we're going to wait until you do, and then we'll Mm -hmm. treat it. But we don't know what to treat it with other than pharmaceuticals. So our goal, obviously, early intervention, early identification of these risk factors, doing whatever we can to mitigate and bring those risk factors back, and doing it with as least invasive and natural approach as possible. Coming back to that allopathic approach, some Mm -hmm. of the pharmaceutical interventions have been researched, including ENOS enhancers, nitrate therapies, alpha beta blockers for blood pressure management, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors to treat high blood pressure, and heart failure statins. I guess one of the questions that I would have is, how well is that working for you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Given that Mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer, Mm -hmm. I don't think it is doing very well. So and they're not changing the lifestyle either. So we no, really aren't addressing not. the underlying no, causes. Not. Nobody wants to change their lifestyle. They want to keep eating McDonald's uh, and it's a choice. taking it's a no choice. responsibility other than opening <laughs> the little orange bottle every day. Anyway, so those are some of the allopathic approaches, the sort of the regulars, if you're thinking about cardiovascular interventions. Take us through the functional naturopathic approach. This is music to my ears. <laughs> I know. And this is, you know, we find the research to support what naturopathic and functional medicine and nutritionists have said for so long, which is diet and exercise are so important. Lifestyle is so important, but there are the reasons why. So first one, just again, we're recognizing contributing factors instead of the disease itself. So let's recognize the contributing factors and then early assessment of related biomarkers. It's so easy to do, you know, even getting blood work on demand, if you want to pay out of pocket, you can get these biomarkers done and monitored every six months. It's not that expensive and it's going to be well worth somebody's, you know, investment in their blood work to catch these things early. So I thought it was so interesting because I found consistently that the early stages of endothelial dysfunction could be reversible. And that's what we want, right? Because if you reverse those before it's full-blown atherosclerosis and heart disease, that's what we want to do. So you have to look at modifiable factors and an unhealthy diet is a huge risk factor a diet that's full of inflammatory compounds, processed food, and not just the presence of, you know, junk food, but the absence of healthy foods that, so the, the diet with this high poly processed diet ends up being low in micronutrients, low in antioxidants, low in phytonutrients, low in fiber, low in omega-3s, low in monounsaturated fats. So 
it's not just the presence of the junk food, but the absence of the healthy food and the nutrients associated with the healthy food. We know exposure to cigarette smoke, toxins, pollution, people forget about pollution, you know, is an oxidative force. So you want to make sure that you can control whatever you can control in your immediate environment. And if you're a cigarette smoker, that's your first thing you have to control is quit smoking. And secondhand smoke we know is so bad. Excess inflammatory compounds and oxidative stress, those are modifiable risk factors. And again, it's going to happen through diet and targeted nutrition support but we can control excess inflammatory compounds and mitigate oxidative stress. And nutrient insufficiencies, you can identify them. Sometimes if you don't have the blood work, I can tell by somebody's you know, week's worth of what they've been eating on a regular yeah. basis, they have nutrient insufficiencies, right? And a sedentary lifestyle, completely modifiable. I mean, there are some cases that's right. Somebody could be, say, wheelchair bound, or they can't be very active. There are always steps that they can take to do some physical therapy interventions and things. So even a sedentary lifestyle can be remedied, even if it's a slight change or a slight increase in activity. So important. I wanted to point out too that unbridled oxidative stress and inflammation disrupt nitric oxide metabolism, which we come back to nitric oxide, right? right. That's the magic again. molecule. Yeah. yeah. So we don't want to inhibit that. So we have to look at oxidative stress and we have to mitigate it. We have to look at inflammation. We have to mitigate it. And inflammation, anything with itis at the end, right? A sign of inflammation, yep. periodontitis, arthritis, those things are signs of inflammation. They have to be addressed. So early recognition of these oxidative stress risk is so, so important if you want to reduce risk of endothelial dysfunction. The factors associated with endothelial dysfunction, increase age, which isn't very modifiable, but you can age healthily. You know, there's a way to do that. Being male, history of coronary heart disease, smoking, Increased total cholesterol, increased LDL cholesterol, a low HDL cholesterol, hypertension, increased homocysteine, diabetes, obesity, high fat meal. That I have a little something to say about in a minute. All of those are associated with endothelial dysfunction. So interventions that can improve endothelial dysfunction, especially if people have these risk factors. We have L-arginine, which for most, in most cases is a safe supplement. In the actually ICU, we're very careful not to give it. If somebody was septic, it would drop mm. their blood pressure too quickly and too profoundly. But for the most part, a fairly healthy person can have L-arginine supplementation, antioxidants, stop smoking, lower your total cholesterol if it's high and find out why it's high. You know, we always have this, I preach to people, cholesterol is needed in the body to make vitamin D and your steroid hormones and other things. So you need cholesterol, find out if it's high, if there's a reason for that. Exercise and Mediterranean diet can all improve endothelial dysfunction. And again, those modifiable risk factors are what we want to look at. So if I can talk a little bit, if we have time, about the negative effects of a high-fat diet. Let's do it, yeah. And then we'll run through just some of the individual nutrients, and that would be That's pretty cool, okay. yeah. Okay. I thought it was so interesting. I heard this many, many years ago, that when people took or consumed a high-fat diet, which was a fast-food diet, okay, and when it had at least 50 grams of fat in the meal itself, it caused endothelial dysfunction. So it actually impaired function, the endothelial function, for up to four hours. So I see I'm going to correct that, put that in purple. So it actually impairs endothelial function for up to four hours. So a high-fat Western-style diet can affect your arteries and how they dilate. And that's a huge problem. But what they did find was there was one study with phytonutrient supplementation. It was a powdered fruit and vegetable concentrate 
high in antioxidants, high in phytonutrients, actually significantly improve low-mediated vasodilation. So I thought that was fascinating because they showed that this phytonutrient supplement can actually improve how your arteries respond to a high-fat diet. So we know that high-fat diet is a problem, a Western-style diet is a problem, but phytonutrient intake during the meal actually helps. And I saw that from years ago too. They gave people vitamin C and vitamin E supplements and it helped your arteries dilate after the high-fat meal whereas they weren't able to dilate properly because of endothelial dysfunction after the high-fat meal without the antioxidants. So take your supplements during a high-fat meal, eat plenty of big old salad with lots of phytonutrients, fruits and vegetables during a high-fat meal. Very, very important to do and very, very easy to do. And if you have a really good multi that has antioxidants in it and you eat a big salad with fruits and vegetables in it, if you're going to have a high-fat meal, supplement the meal at the time you're having the meal can actually improve endothelial function. I thought that was very, was very fascinating. Sweet. Easy steps. Easy steps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, we'll finish up here with some of the naturally occurring antioxidants. Obviously we're looking at decreasing our oxidative stress. We talked about this a lot in our oxidative stress podcast that we did, I think to kick off the optimal the podcast series. So if you're interested in a little bit more about oxidative stress, go over to the blog or review our podcast on that. But there's like five or six different supplements that people can look at. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of supplementation for various reasons. There might be a super healthy person that doesn't need it, but there are a lot more people that need supplementation than don't. And that's from a professional standpoint. You know, I've worked at this for a long time and taught this for a long time. So supplements. So N-acetylcysteine is one. It has potent antioxidant effects. It's part of the tripeptide glutathione compound or molecule. So N-acetylcysteine, very important vitamin C, of course, as a master antioxidant. And vitamin C can scavenge superoxide, but it also can scavenge reactive nitrogen species. So it's not just an antioxidant, but an anti-reactive nitrogen species. And that can help inhibit LDL oxidation. So it's a very good scavenger and it reduces oxidative stress. And there was a study that showed, you know, the lowest measured vitamin C It was in a study of type 1 diabetes, but the lowest vitamin C levels had a significant association with thickened carotid entima media. So there was a thickening of the artery, and that's a presumed sign of atherosclerosis. So low vitamin C in the blood correlated with increased risk of basically atherosclerosis. So it's very, very important. And I remember teaching college many years ago, the top thing with vitamin C deficiency the first sign was atherosclerosis. And you hardly hear that anymore. It's in a nutrition Good. textbook, but nobody is focused on that. Vitamin C is huge. You know, most mammals make their own and we don't. So mm-hmm. we have to get enough from the diet. The question of how much is enough is the big question. Vitamin E also, not in huge doses, but vitamin E is a super important antioxidant. So vitamin C and vitamin E work together as well. I would throw alpha lipoic acid in there too, because it can regenerate vitamin C and vitamin E. Also a well-rounded multi I'd like to talk about that has some vitamin C and vitamin E in it as well. If people are only willing to take one product <laughs> or one supplement, you know, I love my two per day multi. So it's got extra <laughs> vitamin C and vitamin E. It's an easy thing and I have to negotiate with people sometimes. So that's always the first step. But yeah, vitamin C, definitely there was enough information and research on that, that supplementation is usually indicated. It's hard to get enough from the diet. And the more oxidation you're exposed to, the more vitamin C you need, the more stress you have. 
the more vitamin C you need because your adrenal glands release vitamin C under stress and you use it more under stress. So that's a biggie too. Most people are under stress these days. So vitamin C is huge. And of course, from diet initially, you want plenty of fruits and vegetables for your vitamin C, but supplement with it too. And again, arginine, if that's, you know, safe for most people, it seems to be safe, can be supplemented with. When it was combined with vitamins B6, B12 and folate, it actually improved vascular function greatly for those with moderately elevated blood pressure. So arginine, and again, something you want to monitor and make sure people tolerate it over time. Boy, there was quite a list of nutrients that can have antihypertensive effects. And we'll have that in the blog, alpha lipoic acid, like I said, all kinds of CoQ10, flavonoids, even melatonin. And I list some of these in the blog. CoQ10, a very, very easy thing to supplement with. We produce our own CoQ10, but if you're on a statin drug, of course, the statin yeah, drug inhibits production of CoQ10. Right. It inhibits production of cholesterol and CoQ10 by inhibiting that one enzyme. So CoQ10 supplementation in one set of folks, 150 milligrams a day, help to support antioxidant function, reduce inflammatory IL-6, and reduce oxidative stress in people who already had heart disease. So it's a good idea to take it with periodontal disease. If you're on, you know, CoQ10 is an easy thing to supplement with. If you're on a statin, you should definitely be supplementing with CoQ10. On melatonin, I thought it was a kind of high dose, but 10 milligrams of melatonin had, Whoa, that's uh, a high dose. <laughs> I know. So people got to make sure you tolerate one milligram, then three milligrams. And some people have nightmares from it, so you got to be careful. But a higher dose did reduce some of those advanced markers of endothelial dysfunction and reduce CRP and showed and had a significant increase in nitric oxide, right? That magic molecule that Mm -hmm. helps endothelial function. B12 happens to be a cofactor in the metabolism of nitric oxide. So it's super important if anybody, especially as a vegan and having no animal products, they probably need B12 supplementation. Pomegranate juice had some research that was a meta-analysis that showed it reduced inflammatory markers. Dark chocolate, yay. (laughs) Plant-based food is high in flavonoids and has antioxidant factors in it. And, you know, I have this magic chocolatricious recipe that I teach people and everybody kind of loves it. And I actually put powdered phytonutrient powder, like it's a greens powder. You mix that, yeah. If you mix that into dark enough dark chocolate, about I do about 60%. I don't go above that now because of the problem with uh, lead and cadmium, <laughs> but about 60% dark chocolate. And I mix in the greens powder and me, myself, I That's put, awesome. yeah, I put glutamine in there. I put egg white protein powder in there. I actually make a healthy, healthy dark chocolate. Maybe you could post that up on the blog. Yeah, I can do my special recipe. Awesome. Yeah, Who doesn't absolutely. love that? And then I yeah. add, it does taste a little green. So I add a lot of peppermint oil to it. <laughs> yeah, nice. Right. So that's easy. Yes, I can pull that. I can get that to you. And then physical activity, but not overdoing physical activity, right? Some, you know, extreme athletes actually have a lot of oxidative stress that they're not countering. So a good general, a minimum of 40 minutes of physical activity, at least three days a week is the goal, or 10,000 steps a day on a pretty regular basis with aerobic activity three times a week will actually do the trick. You know, you break that sedentary mold by doing that, but not too much. Don't overdo exercise because you can increase oxidative stress, which then can increase endothelial dysfunction. Thank you, Beth, for going through that. So I wanted to finish up by kind of going through basic run through of a lot of this information that we just went through. So the early prevention and, and prevention of endothelial dysfunction. So these are some of the things that you would probably want to pay attention to. So an optimal flow mediated dilation reading, which Beth mentioned is a reflection of nitric oxide production eating a healthy diet rich in fresh fruits and vegetables, antioxidants, omega-3 fatty acids, 
monounsaturated fats, anti-inflammatory herbs and spices, vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients, pretty much the Mediterranean-style diet, targeted mm -hmm. nutritional supplementation with a lot of the ones that we just went through, minimizing your exposure to toxins, pollution, cigarette smoke, and stress, regular, robust physical activity, but not too much, maintain a desirable body weight and lean body mass, manage your stress, and then from a blood chemistry perspective, address the biomarkers that out of the optimal range, including those related to oxidative stress, inflammation, and glucose regulation. So I'm going to read these through to you. So if your patients have above optimal levels of homocysteine or blood glucose, fibrinogen, C-reactive protein, iron levels, ferritin and total iron, if their neutrophil lymphocyte ratio is starting to rise, if they're getting oxidized LDL, if their asymmetric dimethylarginine levels are up, myeloperoxidase, malonaldehyde, gamma-glutamyltransferase. So these are all ones that could be elevated. And that, like as Beth mentioned, if one or two of them are out of range and there's not a lot of this other stuff going on, then you're probably fine. But if you're starting to see a lot of the signs and symptoms of cardiovascular risk, plus a lot of these biomarkers being out of optimal, yeah, stop paying attention. And then obviously decrease omega-3 index, decrease adiponectin, and fewer male patients decrease testosterone. So that's kind of it for a very comprehensive run through. Please go to the optimaldx.com forward slash blog. We've got a lot of blog posts. All of this information is available in a written format with extensive references that Beth Allen has produced. So Beth, thank you so much for all of your hard work on this. This is a tremendous body of work and we're super excited to get that out into the world. Any final comments before we sign off? Eat your fruits and vegetables. Yeah, eat your fruits and vegetables. And we will get your chocolate recipe up there. So, okay. uh, so mm -hmm. that sounds good. Eat your fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and your roots. And then in the evening when you're wanting something a little naughty, nibble on Beth Allen's. Chocotricious, uh, yay. Chocotricious, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, Beth, thanks so much for joining me today. And I look forward to next podcast. We're actually going to be diving back into the basics. We're going to be going right back to looking at this concept of optimal. We're optimal mm -hmm. podcast. My company is called Optimal DX. I'm all about helping people achieve optimal health and wellness. So we're going to be diving into what does it mean to be optimal, looking at optimal biomarkers, looking at the research behind some of the optimal ranges. So taking a little bit less of a specific approach to dysfunctions and kind of coming back to basics. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that information with you. Beth will be joining me, of course. Beth, thank you so much. You're Stay welcome. cool out there. I know <laughs> in February in Florida, it can start getting a little bit warm, but uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, my son's up in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, and they hit negative 50 oh, the other day. That's so, a human. Yeah. In <laughs> <laughs> it's not very warm up there. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on Optimal the Podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. I'm the founder of Optimal DX and the ODX Academy. Again, shameless plug for our blog. All of the hard work that we do to create these reference-based articles are all found on optimaldx.com forward slash blog. If you're interested in learning more about blood chemistry analysis, please check out our training program, bloodchemistrytraining.com and get trained in our work. And then if you're interested in the software analysis, go to optimaldx.com. We've got information on our blood chemistry software. So thanks very much for listening. And we'll be joining you again very soon. My name is Dr. Dick Weatherby. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.